Hi, all. It's good to be here. I hope this season has awakened your senses and put a spring in your step. Thank you so much for being so understanding about how we've relaxed the schedule here on She Explores. It's made me that much more excited to share this special episode with you. As always, take care and stay curious out there. On with the show. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. Were we all worried about losing respect and field cred if we let our sweeter, gentler, more emotional selves show? Are we all just pretending together? Who says makeup doesn't go with muck boots? This is Julia Bingham, she, they, an interdisciplinary marine scientist and currently a PhD candidate at Duke University. Her research is focused on improving conservation and fishery management through local communities' knowledge and values. But her discipline hasn't always been the social sciences. She's been engaged in field-based coastal research in one form or another for nearly 10 years. In undergrad and postgrad, their fieldwork had them on rocky shores, mudflats, beach dunes, forested streams, salt marshes, and onboard research boats. This is all important to know because today Julia is sharing their story of navigating femininity in the field. And whether you're also in environmental sciences, or part of a whole different profession or pastime that has made you feel pressured to fit in, that has made you question what makes you, you, I know Julia's words will resonate. Before we jump in, there are a few mentions of sexual harassment and sexual assault in this episode. Without further ado, makeup and muck boots. It's a long scramble from the truck to the shore, down a steep sandstone slope, slick from last night's drizzle. And with three other scientists, all men, we're heading to an ecological experiment site on the rocky shoreline of coastal Oregon during the early morning low tide. We'll be down at the water for at least four hours. The sky is a soft lilac, the stars are disappearing, the ocean is a rough indigo streaked with gold, and my attention is centered on scoping out a suitable pea bush. I love hiking and backpacking, so I'm no stranger to the trail pea, but coastal fieldwork presents some extra challenges. It's tough to pop a squat wearing enormous waterproof overalls layered between thermals and a hefty and flexible jacket, fully exposed on a rocky ledge or shin deep in marsh mud, with colleagues and the occasional curious member of the public just a few meters away sometimes. If I have to pee during fieldwork without any suitably hidden spot available, I've got a couple of options. I can hold it for the remaining hours while listening to never-ending waves tempting my bladder, or I could trek all the way back to the parking lot, drive several miles to a public toilet, and then take an eternity getting out of all of my layers. Sometimes I'll even try to be strategic about timing my water and caffeine intake to minimize the potential need for breaks. If I'm on my period, I have less choice about skipping the restroom. In these moments, I find myself jealous of the men I work with who, barring a number two need, can usually just go stand behind the truck. This is just one pretty benign example of the ways that I've felt my body, or for that matter my gender, play an active role in how I experience fieldwork. By fieldwork, I mean research and scientific data collection done at a study site, often outdoors or, quote, in the field, 
rather than in a lab or a classroom. My academic career has revolved around various types of fieldwork. Over time, I've realized that my physical needs as a female-bodied person, as well as my relationship to gender, are intimately connected to my research and fieldwork experience. There's so much that I love about fieldwork. Being fully present in outdoor spaces and using my body, the challenges that help me build personal and professional skills, and the space that allows for fostering a childlike wonder at the world around me. Fieldwork can also be an incredibly intimate way to build relationship to place, which I find helps solidify a sense of connection and belonging that has often eluded me in the social world. Even now that my research includes more work with people, fieldwork still brings thrilling surprises and a way to actively pursue curiosity and connectivity. Still, challenges and frustrations emerge, especially when science and fieldwork become unnecessarily gendered or unwelcoming spaces. That disrupts all those good bits. Over time, a theme has emerged across my fieldwork. My body and how I express my gender and my sexuality as a queer woman influences my experience in the field and vice versa. I've become deeply familiar with the extra challenges that come with being female-bodied in outdoor fieldwork. I've also found myself wrestling with my relationship to my gender and how I show up to my academic, professional, and personal worlds. Struggling to find a place to go pee or to change a tampon makes for entertaining stories, but ultimately it reflects a barrier of accessibility. Bringing up these kinds of topics with an instructor or a project lead can feel really embarrassing, especially if it's perceived as questioning established methods with, quote, personal issues. <laughs> when I've been a part of fieldwork led by women, these challenges are distinctly less present. There's more openness about attending to bodily needs. Other fieldwork accessibility barriers are issues too. The physical demands of fieldwork and the financial burden of traveling and gear without support from the university or research group can be prohibitive to many people. Field gear itself is often unavailable in sizes fit to petite or to curvy bodies. And when it is, it's often limited to thinner, pinker, tighter versions with an even bigger price tag. When I got my field gear in undergrad, I needed my own set of the muck boots, bib overalls, and PVC jacket that we used to stay dry and warm in the cold Pacific coastal fog and wave splash. Navigating availability and price meant buying the overalls and the jacket in a men's small, which was still ridiculously oversized for me, and the bagginess made it hard not to slip on the wet rocks. Then there are issues around safety. Women are more likely to be harassed or assaulted while in the field, especially if conducting the work alone, or even when they're with supervisors. This is on top of the disproportionate rates of harassment by male peers and superiors that women already experience in academia. A survey conducted in 2014 by researchers at University of Illinois, Skidmore College, and Harvard found that 71% of women who conduct scientific fieldwork experience sexual harassment mostly perpetrated by superiors in their research at their field site while the women were trainees or students, compared to only about 41% of men. That's almost two times the likelihood of harassment for women compared to men. The survey also found that 26% of women reported experiencing sexual assault during fieldwork, also usually while they were a trainee or student. And while these stats are staggering, I unfortunately also know this risk to be true from my own experience. Research shows that it's also common for women to feel disregarded, devalued, seen as less capable, 
patronized, or otherwise be the target of sexism in science. Some women report being delegated to more, quote-unquote, feminine roles in the fieldwork groups. For example, organizing the group's food. And many find themselves feeling forced to choose between having a family and maintaining a career that includes fieldwork. There are so many intersecting dimensions of identity that complicate how people experience barriers in fieldwork. Race, class, sexuality, disability, the list goes on. Lack of support, accessibility barriers, discrimination, compounded with safety concerns in fieldwork, all disproportionately impact the experiences of women of color. Black, Indigenous, and other people of color are consistently left or pushed out of science and academia, experience high stress, racial profiling, and elevated rates of harassment and assault while conducting the fieldwork. And they tend to be treated as less competent by peers and mentors. Rates of harassment and discrimination in the field are also elevated for queer people. A recent survey of geoscientists found that more than half of respondents feel unsafe in the field, and as many as one-third have opted not to do fieldwork due to personal safety concerns specifically linked to their gender or sexuality. It's no wonder then that, over time, women, and especially queer, gender non-conforming, trans women and women of color are less likely than cis men to continue conducting fieldwork later in their careers. I love fieldwork and want others to be able to access and enjoy it, but I also have to clarify the privileged place where I'm coming from. I'm a white bi woman who's very newly exploring being openly non-binary. My overall experience in fieldwork and science has been resoundingly positive. In many ways, my whiteness and my ability to pass as not queer keeps me safe. I'm a less vulnerable target for harassment, discrimination, and assault because I'm more likely to be believed than a student of color if I were to report an incident. I also have the financial means and the physical ability to conduct fieldwork with minimal assistance. I have a supportive and thoughtful doctoral advisor who allows me an enormous amount of autonomy in my dissertation research, and my undergrad advisor was similarly respectful, patient, and encouraging. I do have it pretty easy in the fieldwork world. A common frustration that comes up in conversations with my peers and colleagues who are women is the way that certain quote-unquote feminine traits get shut down in fieldwork. Even though there are more genders represented today, men are still the majority and many fieldwork experiences still seem to come along with a supremely masculine machismo energy. In many of my experiences, and in the stories shared with me by my peers, there's been a general man-up-and-tough-it-out approach to the fieldwork. We routinely swap stories about project leads who make a very masculine show of their fieldwork to the extent that they take unnecessary risks, resist delegating tasks requiring physical strength, make gendered jokes during the work, and have little patience for less experienced students. None of these patterns are inherently masculine, but I can't ignore that they're often paired with stories of the same project leads treating students differently based on gender. Such mentors tend to provide more professional attention to men and masculine peers during physically demanding fieldwork, while dismissing women and feminine peers or giving them too much personal attention. Case in point, I once had a project lead who was much more concerned with trying to set me up with his favored male student than with the quality of my work. I was supposed to feel flattered by the sexualized attention, and when I attempted to report the professor, I was quietly sidelined from future research products related to the project. It can feel like we have to minimize femininity in order to reduce friction. 
to best play the macho fieldwork game, I used to defeminize myself in the field, especially during undergraduate and postgrad ecology research. To be clear, I did need to be my toughest self for some of the physical demands of the work, but I also genuinely felt that it was even more important to be perceived as tough. I thought appearing soft or girly would work against me. Hello, internalized misogyny. If I didn't come off as strong enough to carry the gear or resilient enough to weather the conditions or stoic enough to manage unexpected setbacks, I feared my male colleagues would view me as less capable of doing the work and delegate me to less exciting tasks, or worse, not ask for my assistance in future fieldwork at all. I didn't want to lose their respect, which was tied to my ability to keep up in the field, or at least I thought so. So I would shut down my emotions, minimize my expressiveness. I'd try to appear less feminine. I'd tuck my hair under a hat, avoid jewelry and makeup in the field, and mirror the behavior of my male colleagues. I would also physically push myself. I worked through flare-ups of my chronic headaches and back pain, impaired circulation and digestive issues. I'd never, ever voiced discomfort. I don't think I told any mentors or colleagues about my health challenges while I was in the ecology fieldwork world, even though it made the work painful and contributed to worsened anxiety. I didn't want to reinforce stereotypes of women being not tough enough for the field. Defemming myself extended beyond being around other scientists to any men that were a part of my fieldwork experience. During one of the first projects where I frequently interacted with fishers, I caught myself masculinizing my body language. I'd converse with the fishermen with my feet braced, chin up, shoulders squared, jacket pulled back, hands in pockets and elbows out wide. <laughs> I'd even project my voice louder and deeper than how I usually speak. I would literally try to disguise the difference in age and sex between me and the men around me by mirroring their posture and their mannerisms. These performances are tiring and they make me feel alone. Trying to take up space this way takes extra effort for me and reinforces to myself that some of my real personality traits, like being sensitive, emotional, expressive, inquisitive, and careful, they're not welcome in the field. At the end of a group fieldwork day, I'd ultimately be more exhausted from my social performance than from the physical work. Eventually, I did realize that much of my worry about how I was being perceived had a lot to do with my own ego in relationship to femininity. When I was five, I decided that my favorite color was no longer fuchsia pink. It was sky blue. The boys in my class were insistent that pink was a girly color and that girly things are gross. They wouldn't allow quote unquote girly kids to play tag or hide and seek with them. I was learning to associate the word girly with silly, weak, and boring. I didn't want to be those things. Therefore, I didn't want to be girly. I wanted to play active physical games outside. Therefore, I didn't want to be girly. For years, I rejected soft, floral, colorful, flouncy, frilly, pink, pastel, girly things because I wanted to be strong and smart and cool and allowed to play in the dirt with the boys. I had learned that those were separate worlds. I carried this grade school lesson into the world of science where the often hyper-masculine environment of fieldwork reinforced it. In college, that fraught relationship with my femininity 
lent itself to confusing frictions across multiple dimensions of my life. At the same time as I was building my research and fieldwork experience, I was struggling to figure out how to navigate my social world as a young woman. I found myself working hard to be the right kind of feminine, attractive to the male gaze in the social realm through some elusive balance of softness, docility, and sexiness, while still one of the boys in the science classrooms, in the lab, and in the field. In either space, I was trying to receive validation from the men who surrounded me. I reflected their ideas of how a scientist should behave in one world and what a potential date should look like in the other. The dissonance between the two performances, neither of which felt like my actual self, was bewildering, exhausting, and terrible for my well-being. It was also terrible for my friendships with other women. It wasn't until my first year of grad school that I really started to unpack my relationship to my gender. The catalyst was a particularly bad burnout, spurred by a confluence of physical and mental health challenges, including a bike accident that resulted in a concussion and a broken wrist, and back-to-back sexual assaults from two male peers. I finally sought counseling, where I eventually began to realize how much I was hurting myself with my heavily gendered self-editing. Several years later, I'm still navigating what feels most like me. One aspect of this is to intentionally bring the masculine into my social world and the feminine into my professional world, including fieldwork. As I rediscovered my love for girly things, like dresses and flowers, and as I started building relationships in the queer community, eventually realizing I'm queer myself, I found myself angry, saddened, and confused that I felt I had to leave being a girl out of my identity during fieldwork. I resented that I had learned to view my own softness and emotionality as weakness. I was reteaching myself to devalue feminine traits every time I went into the field and reinforcing a belief that those traits are at all gendered in the first place. In a way, deciding to bring more of my authentic self back into my work helped force me to begin confronting my own internalized misogyny. Even if the consequences of being perceived as feminine during fieldwork are real, I wasn't helping myself by using so much energy to present a curated version of myself. I also wasn't helping any of my peers or students by setting an example to play along with the pressure to man up. I knew through personal conversations that some of my women and non-binary peers felt similarly to me, and I wondered how many of the men around me in the field were also putting on a more manly show. Were we all worried about losing respect and field cred if we let our sweeter, gentler, more emotional selves show? Are we all just pretending together? I started to experiment. I began bringing more of my femininity into the field and standing up for myself when encountering gendered barriers. I speak more openly about my needs and I try to let my enthusiasm and frustration show. I have fun with my jewelry, I wear mismatched sparkly studs when fieldwork makes dangly earrings impractical, I have a variety of go-to braided hairstyles so my long hair stays out of the way while still bringing me feminine joy. Sometimes I'll go weeks without eyeliner, sometimes I'll wear mascara in the marsh and lip color in the lab. Who says makeup doesn't go with muck boots? 
Refemming myself does occasionally present really uncomfortable and challenging experiences, but it's also liberating to choose to present the way I want, even if it isn't always in a feminine way. Sometimes I want the blocky boot and funky patterned square cut button up instead of the floral dress or blouse. When I'm most comfortable alone or with my closest friends, I rarely think about my gender at all. I wish I could say that this caution to the wind, just be yourself approach is the relationship I have with my gender expression all of the time now. That's not true. To me, it would be ideal if none of my actions and expressions were perceived externally as gendered or prompted me to think of myself in a gendered way. I don't particularly like trying to place labels on my identity, especially ones that tend to infer a societal ideal of how to look or behave. They stress me out and they trigger my fears around not being a good scientist or the right kind of woman. <laughs> my insecurities about bending too far from the norm still flare up regularly, and I still worry how I'm perceived by colleagues. That'll probably remain true for a long time, and that's okay. Even if uncomfortable or tiring, I do believe it pays to be conscious of how your gender is perceived in the field. Gender performance can be a strategic tool, albeit a very personal one. Here's how I choose to use it. In unfamiliar research environments, I pay attention to how other women dress and behave to gauge what is acceptable, or rather safe, in that space. In my current people-centered research, there's less of a need to be physically tough, but I still frequently attend to how I'm perceived. While conducting interviews, I balance showing up authentically, which most people do respond well to during conversations, with trying to defeminize myself when I get a sense that the interviewee sees me as a young woman first and a competent researcher second. I amp up my softer feminine side while observing a meeting space because I'm more easily ignored that way, so the meeting is more likely to proceed as it would without my presence. I still sometimes take on a wider stance and a louder, deeper, rougher voice when I tag along with fisheries managers on fieldwork so that they might take me more seriously. I also drop occasional ecology jargon into my vocabulary so that they know that even if I am now participating as a social scientist, I have sufficient background experience to understand their work. I've also upped my safety game now that I conduct a lot of fieldwork solo. I attempt to androgenize my appearance, and I tuck a knife and whistle into my pocket when entering an unfamiliar outdoor field site alone. Some of my peers who are women carry pepper spray and other types of self-protection precautions in their own solo fieldwork as well. It's only while working with trusted peers and colleagues, or while leading a group of students in a familiar space, that I switch from gender performance for safety to gender performance for self-expression. I do something similar with sexuality, too. I'm only recently becoming more open about my queerness outside of my friendship circles because being perceived as anything but cis and straight by some of my colleagues seemed like a whole bucket of worms I didn't feel ready to open. All this effort to shift how I'm perceived has served me in two opposing ways. On the one hand, I do sometimes feel trapped by my female body and the challenges that come along with it in the field research. I often resent having to think about my bodily needs or my presentation of gender at all. On the other hand, through fieldwork, I've become much more confident in my own abilities in outdoor work and more familiar with my personal sense of gender and sexuality. 
Ironically, refemming myself allowed me to become less attached to she, her pronouns. Playing with and feeling frustrated by femininity in fieldwork has helped me to embrace my own identity and queerness and empowered me to be more of my actual self in my professional and personal life. It's also helped me to be a more reflective academic, which is instrumental in my current work with Indigenous collaborators. In order for me to conduct equitable and ethical research, practicing relationality, which is often perceived as feminine in nature, is essential. Reflexiveness and an intentional awareness of my potential impact as a white scientist are also key. It's infinitely rewarding to see young women and queer students thoroughly enjoy themselves on a class trip to the field because they feel comfortable with me as their TA. I want to empower my students to bring their authentic selves into the classroom in the field. I believe we're better scholars when we're not distracted by having to present in the right way to feel safe or accepted. I enjoy feeling strong and tough and capable, but I don't believe one should have to man up or hide the emotional feminine self in order to be those things. Relationality and vulnerability require great strength of character. Persevering in research requires both resilience and self-compassion. I love fieldwork. Fieldwork pushes me to go outside my comfort zone in a way that has helped me grow immensely in my confidence and self-assurance. Fieldwork fuels my tenacity, my boldness, and my curiosity. Fieldwork helps me get in touch with that inner child that never lost their love of playing in the mud and trying to make friends with plants and creatures. Fieldwork helps me find my limits. It helps me decide which fears to navigate and overcome and which ones to listen to and build boundaries around. Fieldwork is messy and it almost never goes to plan, which drives me nuts by challenging my attachment to control and structure. And that's instrumental to my personal growth. Fieldwork has facilitated and deepened some of my most valuable relationships and fieldwork is fun. It helps me figure out what makes me feel most like me. And this has rung true for me in nearly every type of fieldwork I've experienced so far, and I'm immensely grateful for that. It is essential, in my opinion, that these positive experiences are accessible to anyone who wants to do outdoor work. Knowing where to pee, having tampons and pads on hand with other field supplies, building an inclusive and affirming team culture, and keeping firm personal boundaries and robust safety practices as a part of fieldwork protocol helps to mitigate risk and reduce the othering that women can feel in the field, especially newer students. When mentors and colleagues create a welcoming space, when femininity or queerness isn't implicitly equated with weakness, and when taking care of bodily needs doesn't come with shame, we are liberated to be fully present in the field and actually enjoy our work. Those of us with experience, privilege, and power to enact change can work to make fieldwork spaces more safe, accessible, and inclusive for others. We can take the time to figure out how our identities relate to our fieldwork and challenge the unnecessarily gendered dimensions of field research. We can make fieldwork a more relational and mutually supportive and collaborative space through our softer selves. We can disencumber our curiosity that drives our scientific interests from trying to be masculine enough to be included. 
and we can make fieldwork a more diverse, expressive, and fun space to revel in the mess and the muck by encouraging each other to bring our most authentic and enthusiastic selves to the field. While en route to my current field site on Vancouver Island this past September, I stopped over in Seattle to see my friend Jesse. Jesse is beautifully, wonderfully, infinitely and androgynously queer, and they have been an invaluable source of love and support for me for nearly a decade. I consider them a role model in authentic self-expression. It was the first time that we'd seen each other in over two years, and we've both grown further into ourselves over that time. Jesse told me I was serving them Lara Croft meets Humanities Professor vibes in the best way. And I think that is exactly the level of academic feminine badassery that I'd like to keep carrying through my career and all the fieldwork to come. Thanks so much to Julia Bingham for sharing their story with us. You can find Julia on Instagram at Julia A. Bing and on Twitter at Julia A. Bingham. Julia also shared this piece as an essay on she-explores.com. As always, I'll link this all in the show notes. You can find She Explores on social media, our website, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter to stay up to date. We also just launched a new community classifieds feature, so definitely recommend subscribing to check that out. You can find me on Instagram at Gail Straub. If you enjoy listening, there are different ways to support us. You can subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Head to ratethispodcast.com slash sheexplorers to easily review. And if you'd like to connect, join us in the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. Music in this episode is licensed through Musicbed. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Gail Straub. She Explorers is a production of Ravel Media. Until next time, stay curious.